1: Hello, and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Ali Vingiano, a filmmaker and actor whose work includes writing and producing for the Emmy winning series, The Morning Show. You can currently see her in theaters and on demand for her first feature film, The End of Us. Ali, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited for you to be here. Um, not least, I know I already mentioned this to you before we started recording, but one of my favorite people in the world is, I think, the biggest fan of The Morning Show who has ever lived. Um, and I've really been enjoying uh, watching my phone blow up when I mentioned it. And it's just, um, I, I truly, truly, it's taking me back to like when I was in sixth grade and I found out I was going to get to go to a Hanson concert. Like that was the last time I think I experienced that. Oh level my God. Of joy. <laughs>
0: I can't believe the comparison. I I reject it. I'm not Hanson, but but um, that's really cool that she's a fan.
1: I mean, even Hanson wasn't Hanson. You know, like the energy that I was bringing to Hanson, it was more than the sum of their parts. Um, as much as I retrospectively uh, appreciate their commitment to learning a little bit of the piano,
0: that is fair. We all brought we all brought a lot to Hanson.
1: So much. Yeah. The death of the author started with Hanson concerts in the Midwest in the 1990s. I, um, since I grew up like shortly before anybody had like smartphones or, or recording, I was amazed last year when one of the few friends that I keep in touch with from elementary school sent me a video like on my smartphone because they had like uploaded the old camcorder to DVD and then later online. And I got to see a video of my 11 year old self. Like, learning we were going to a handsome concert and just, like, unhinging my jaw and letting out a sound that only pterodactyls had previously made.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. Wait, so how was the concert? That's an incredible concert
1: to go to. It was, like, I want to say, like, 1998, 1997. Wow. It was at a huge outdoor amphitheater somewhere in suburban Chicago. And I I remember pretty much just making that sound on loop for eight or nine hours. Um, and I, again, like retroactively feel really bad for my friend Brianna's dad who took us. Oh, It's very nice of him. Sure.
0: Very, very kind. Yes. My, my dad definitely. And some of my friends' dads definitely, it was always the dads weirdly, but, um, like suffered through some concerts when I was in middle school, but Hanson is one I'm very jealous of.
1: It is remarkable. I I shared your experience where for whatever reason, according to the sort of like traditionally gendered divisions of labor, taking the middle schoolers to concerts somehow fell to the dads.
0: It really did. I remember like, yeah, I remember seeing like Saves the Day and Blink-182 and Green Day all with dads. (laughs) I wonder why that happened.
1: I don't know. But yeah, if anyone listening uh, remembers going to concerts in middle school with a mom. Um, please write in. I'd love to hear from you. What was that like? <laughs> um, but yeah, those are fabulous concerts. I hope that you got as much joy out of them as was, you know, physically possible.
0: I believe I did. Very fond memories of screaming and being super excited. And yeah, concerts when you're young and can first start going to them and you feel so free and so alive. It's it's very special.
1: Yeah, it's very special. And it, it for me, at least, it vanished along with the ability to enjoy roller coasters Somewhere late in high school, like I, I definitely remember being 11 or 12 and thinking like, "I'm never going to not love roller coasters. Sometimes we go to six flags with other people's parents and they don't want to ride the rides. That's never going to be me, man. I'm going to be like this forever. <laughs>
0: And then you're, like, in your 20s, and you're on a roller coaster, and your head is, like, hitting the back, and it's miserable, and you get a headache, and yeah.
1: Yeah, I just, I lost it, and I didn't know that it was, I felt like I was in a documentary about the 60s, and I, like, went from, like, it's Woodstock, everything's going to be great, to, like, you know, cut to everything was not great um, way sooner than I ever thought would come. (laughs) That actually feels appropriate because our first letter is about the like spiritual opposite of going to a concert that you really enjoy. Um, and it's just about like how do you deal with people who are being really rude to you while you are also vomiting, which is a horrible combination of things to have to experience. Would you be so good as yeah. to read our first letter?
0: Yes, I would love to. The subject is sick of it. I have a chronic illness which has symptoms similar to pregnancy. People will not stop asking me if I'm pregnant, often repeatedly and with comments about my body and invasive follow-ups about my sex life and period when I say no. I don't know how to answer the fourth, are you sure, politely. I know I'm private about this illness, but I'm already exhausted from being sick all the time and I don't want to share intimate details about my health because they assume I'm pregnant. If I can't get away, sometimes I'm vomiting in a public bathroom, for instance, I sometimes have to explain that I've been sick for a long time, and even then people will say things like, you can't be sure that this time it isn't a pregnancy, even if you use birth control, there's still a risk, as if this is a revelation to me. People sometimes get offended if I tell them I'm uncomfortable. Oof. Even if I stop answering questions, they won't always leave me alone. I've heard you recommend just walking away in similar situations, but often I'm too sick to do that in the moment. I feel like I must be doing something or failing to do something to invite this weird attention and energy all of the time. I'm in my early 20s, and I'm better at not being intimidated than I was in my teens, but I'm sick and tired of people thinking they can barrage me with questions about my uterus whenever I leave the house. What is going on, and what can I say or do to stop it?
1: I am just so sorry, first of all, that this letter writer is experiencing all of this on top of a chronic illness. Um, I think it is one of the sort of like extreme test cases of like a general uh, like social tendency to treat, you know, women of a certain age as always potentially pregnant in ways that can be like incredibly dehumanizing and incredibly dangerous and, you know, deeply, deeply like just personally painful um especially in this case and i'm so 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 sorry um that you're experiencing this in moments of like deep personal vulnerability and just like that strangers or acquaintances or potentially even friends and relatives are always treating you like a potentially pregnant person rather than like a sick person who is in need of you know at the very least private time to throw up
0: yeah, absolutely. I had my my instinct reading this was the same of just I'm really sorry that you're experiencing this, and that the people in your life and the just people in general are not able to understand and and sympathize with you in the way that is necessary, and
1: that would be kind. So I realize that that's not necessarily extremely helpful in terms of like what we might want to advise this letter writer to to do, but you know at least in terms of that question of like what is going on is um, for a number of reasons. Uh, People often want to treat like women of a certain age, the age that you are at, for example, as like primarily and sort of like ontologically as a potential gestator. Um, And that's bad. This is one of the many reasons that that's bad. Um, And they get very invested in it. um, And in fact, will like want to deflect actual reality, like, no, I'm not pregnant, um, in order to, like, prioritize that bizarre commitment to, you know, pregnancy above personhood. And I'm really, really sorry. And I think it's as simple as that. Like, I don't think you need to worry that you're, like, doing something wrong, or if only you were handling these situations differently, that you wouldn't be getting this. This is nothing to do with you and everything to do with them, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I feel 100% percent the same way. When you said, I feel like I must be doing something or failing to do something to invite this weird attention and energy all of the time. I do encourage you to reframe it slightly because I don't think you are doing something wrong. I think that people are obsessed with other people's bodies and with, um, you know, I I don't want to talk about myself too much, but (laughs) um, we'll insert quickly that I grew up with, or I have celiac disease, which is not a chronic illness that was, you know, it's it's now very manageable. Everybody knows what gluten intolerance is. Um, when I was five years old or 10 or 15, um, you know, nobody had ever heard of it. And, you know, at birthday parties or, you know, you're around all this food and I would constantly have to be explaining to people, I'm allergic to wheat, oats, barley, and rye. That means I can't eat this, that, that, that. And all the parents would be like, what? Like, you can't eat cake? Like, well, Like, what happens if you do? And then I would be, like, in this position of having to sort of, I didn't want to talk to them about, like, my digestive system at this party or people being like, oh, I would kill myself if I had what you have. Like, that's awful. Like, just people saying all of these things to you all of the time, having to explain over and over things that you don't necessarily want to talk about. People are obsessed with this. There's nothing that you're doing. Like I just really want to encourage you to know that like you're not doing anything wrong to invite this energy. Um, If anything, I think you could maybe start working on how you can create boundaries and how you can make it clear what you do and don't want to talk about. But it is really hard to do that because when you do have a chronic illness, you're already using so much energy to to take care of yourself. And I, I do understand that.
1: Yeah, I also really wanted to try to at least in my own mind remind myself that often this is happening while the letter writer is like actually throwing up and I don't want to spend too much time mm-hmm. in like and here's a really witty rejoinder because again when you are also puking that is I think the last thing you want to uh, have to try to do is like find a way to do like a sort of funny kiss off. So, you know, letter writer again I I really, really wish that these people would listen to you the fourth time you say no. Like, you are being incredibly clear. You are being appropriate, reasonable, clear, polite. You're not doing a damn thing wrong. Anybody who is, you know, repeatedly going after the, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? It's incredibly important to me that you be pregnant. It's incredibly important to me to, like, speculate about your hypothetical pregnancy, um, which, you know, again, just like given the news literally today as as at the time of our recording, um, the fucking implications that that has um is is really awful. So I guess i I say all that to give you real permission, letter writer, to start uh, with the energy of your fourth no on your first um if you if you mm-hmm. want to just say like, nope, I'm not pregnant. People ask me this a lot. They sometimes ask me five times in a row. Let's get this out of the way so that you and I don't have to do this now. I'm not pregnant. I know I'm not pregnant. Do you have anything else that you want to say to me or like, can you go?
0: Yeah. And I wonder if there's like a, I'm not interested in having this conversation or like, I'm not interested in discussing this. Like I will not participate in discussing this. I know what's happening to me because this is, the condition that I live it with. And um, if you are, I mean, sometimes when you're throwing up, you're not going to say these things. It's just, you. it's just not going to happen. But if you are in a position where you are able to start creating boundaries like that, even though these might be close friends who you are sort of afraid to stand up to or people who you feel it's inappropriate to talk like this to, i if you are able in a situation where you do have the energy to start being a little more stern about what you're comfortable talking about, I think it will invite better people into your life who respect your boundaries more.
1: Yeah. And I do, as I'm rereading this letter, I do think the one sort of relief here is it really does seem like it's mostly um, repeated encounters with strangers or near strangers. Um, I think especially that line about whenever I leave the house and also because I imagine if this Mm -hmm. were coming up with people the letter writer were close with, she would have mentioned that. So um, one possible strategy, again, that I don't think will work all of the time, but if you are out of the house and you're going to be with a friend, um, to potentially, you know, I, I, I don't know if all of your friends are aware of your chronic illness, and I really do want to respect the fact that you don't want to share details of this um, as a sort of prerequisite for getting help, but you might uh, consider saying to a friend, "If I have to duck into the bathroom to be ill, I want to let you know." Um, sometimes people like. Barrage me with questions while I'm sick. If, you know, either if this is a friend who can come into the bathroom with you or just stand guard outside of the door and ask for a little help in terms of just like politely but firmly redirecting people who who might be asking questions, just be like, nope, she's, she's okay. She'll be out in a few minutes, um, who could maybe run some interference for you. Again, without going into any detail about what else is going on, that might be an occasional um, sort of form of assistance or blunting the. The force with which other people try to come at you.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I do think that if there is any way to create some sort of support system for yourself, whether it is close friends who you can talk about this with and make it clear to them what's going on, um, or maybe some sort of, you know, you know, if maybe there is a support group for people who have the same chronic illness as you or other people in your life who have this illness or, you know, just some sort of support group where you could talk about this with with people i think could really help and including some of your friends in this conversation so that they can stand up for you. I think we underestimate how much our friends do want to be there for us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think my sort of other thought along those lines would be um if somebody is, you know, hovering outside of the stall door or trying to ask you questions um to pair together a redirect and a request. Um so to say something like, I can't talk when I'm throwing up. Can you please get me a glass of water? Um, or I can't talk Mm -hmm. when I'm sick. Please don't ask me questions. That makes it worse. Can you bring me some paper towels? Um, and just to have like a quick one sentence thing so that they know, oh gosh, if I'm asking questions, I'm making it worse. And also now I have a little task. Even if you don't need the water or the paper towels, you know, you can pour the water down the toilet. You can, um, Put the paper towels in the little bin that they use for for uh, trash in the stall. Um, this doesn't need to be something you're actually going to use. It's just like I'm giving you a pretend little task, like in the um, the Phantom Toll Booth, when the like what is it the, the abominable trivial or something is like carrying a little thimble full of sand back and forth. It's not a real job. Um, it is a fake job that is designed to trick someone into not talking.
0: Yeah, I'm very familiar with this. <laughs> I think that's a great idea, though. I also wanted to flag another thing that I noticed from this letter writer. Um, two sentences. The people sometimes get offended if I tell them I'm uncomfortable. And then the I'm better at not being intimidated than I was in my teens. So I, I'm interested in what you think, Danny, but I'm I mean, I'm curious about those sentences because it seems like part of what you're struggling with, letter writer, is how. Other people will view you in these situations and how um, you can sort of take care, may- maybe even taking care of their feelings or just a fear of the way you'll be perceived, um, which I completely understand. It's so relatable, especially if you're sick. But I wonder if there's something there that maybe is relevant here.
1: Um, yeah, I'm glad that you flagged that as well, because um There is, on the one hand, I want to encourage the letter writer to feel total freedom. If somebody's offended when you say, I'm not pregnant, like, they can fuck off. You no longer have to worry about being polite. Like, you know, I don't recommend, um, like, screaming obscenities or saying, I'll kill you. But pretty much anything short of that, like, telling somebody to fuck off, if that feels like something you can say, do it. They're being rude. They deserve to be met with some rudeness back. Um, They do not need, um, like, ongoing placation from you. If you know, and I'm also aware, like I've had some uncomfortable moments in public bathrooms in my day, so I also really understand if you're like, I don't feel super safe, like um, with somebody who's already behaving unreasonably at me in a public bathroom. I don't want to um, risk potential like further hostility, um, and so I would rather just like say whatever I need to say to keep the peace. in In which case. Letter writer, I would encourage you, um, and again, feel free not to pursue this if this doesn't sound like something that you could do comfortably. Lie. Yes, I am pregnant. Thank you for noticing. I can't tell anyone. Uh, the father is my long-lost love who just came back from a journey at sea, and I don't know how to tell our parents because they're enemies. Like, make up stupid, silly soap opera plot lines. Like, yes, I'm pregnant. I just broke up with him last week, but it was a test because I'm in love with him. And now I'm so scared. What should I do? Do you think I should tell him? Do you think, like, give them whatever nonsense they want? Like, I'm pregnant. I can't believe it. I've been trying for 10 years. I never thought it like any bananas, silly story that is just totally ludicrous. If it's somebody you know you're never going to see again and all you want is to not get in a fight, give them what they want. They are strangers. You always have my permission to lie to strangers who are being weird and you need to just like get them off your back. So again, you don't have to do that. If that feels really, really uh, like difficult to do, or if you're worried that you will then bump into them again, or you're just not good at lying to strangers, you don't have to, but it's an option as is like getting little business cards that say just like you can slide out under your, under the stall, like under your foot. It's like, no, I'm not pregnant. I'm really not pregnant. Please don't ask that again. Get me a towel or leave. I think those were my last thoughts. Yeah. Lying and business cards. I
0: think think lying is smart. Like if it is a stranger and if you can, if that makes it makes them shut up, like I I 100% support that. That's the I would have totally done that when I was younger. Um, about, you know, whatever I wanted to lie about at the time yeah, but, pregnant. Um, or it's whatever triplets. I was being bothered by. I'm going to
1: name them all after you, yeah. <laughs> anything like this is, this was never going to be like an authentic moment of like true human connection. No. So don't worry no, about No, not
0: when they're at treating you like that.
1: No, again, just, I'm so sorry. I think those are the ends of my sort of like ideas. If anybody else listening has had similar experiences and has any suggestions for something that has worked for them in terms of getting somebody off their back, please write in and, and let us know. I would be more than happy to, to read that on the air. But also, I'm just sorry. And I hope all of those people end up throwing up unexpectedly later that day themselves.
0: <laughs> um. Likewise. And I also just want to add that the um better at being intimidated than what you were in your teens, that will keep, you will continue to get stronger and stronger in not being intimidated and setting boundaries and feeling comfortable with yourself and and. Um, I think in all of those things, as you get older, this will also benefit um, this issue of being worried that you're offending people if you know, or being annoyed that they're getting offended when you're trying to stand up for yourself. And I think um, that will get better and it will change and you will hopefully not have to deal with this forever.
1: Oh, I had one last thought occur to me, which I don't know why it didn't occur to me before. Uh, letter writer, you're also free to say nothing, like literally nothing. If somebody comes in and they're like, are you throwing up? Are you okay? Don't say shit. Like, that is also an option. Um, You can just fucking ignore them. I can't, again, promise you that any one of these approaches is going to immediately get you the result you want, which is that person leaving you alone. But um, that is also an option of just like, just because someone asks you a question does not mean that you have to answer it. So... We get to move on to sort of a different version of the same question, I think.
0: Okay, let's do it.
1: Yeah, which is like, what do I do about people who are being weird to me about something that doesn't involve them? So the subject Mm -hmm. here is mortified. Last night at 11 p.m., someone knocked on our apartment door. My sweetheart and I, we both used they-them, had just finished having sex and were going to bed. Startled, we didn't answer at first. A few minutes later, there was more knocking. I looked through the peephole and it was our downstairs neighbor. After the third persistent knock, my partner put on a robe and answered the door. The neighbor explained madly that he could hear us having sex and would we lower the volume. I was shocked and confused because we weren't being loud at all. We were even done in 20 minutes. We were using our indoor voices with normal groans and no yelling. We even lived on his floor last year and we only ever heard the occasional footsteps from the floors above. My partner placated him and he left. I had a hard time sleeping that night and have felt mortified ever since. How can I have sex again without now thinking about this neighbor listening and that he might angrily interrupt again? Should we forget about it? Follow up with him, and if so, how? I am so sorry, but I also really loved the just little like checklist of like here's exactly like what the parameters of this particular like round of sex was like. wasn't he, it? Wasn't that thrilling? Like, don't get don't get weird. Like, this was quiet <laughs> modest. Like, weeknight sex.
0: (laughs) No yelling.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I'm really sorry, too. And I I feel both mindful of, like, there's part of me that wants to give the, like, little stinker answer of, like, he has no right to do this. Everyone is allowed to have sex as loudly as they want in their homes. Um, And then also balance that against, like, it seems pretty clear that the letter writer was also, like, intimidated. And that the knocking was, like, pretty aggressive and pretty persistent. And so part of this isn't just, like do I have the right to tell this guy to fuck off? And then also that kind of question of like, was some of this motivated by like prurient homophobia? Might he start harassing us? Might he try to like, you know, who knows? You know, like when somebody starts off by doing something unreasonable, part of the fear then is like, how much more unreasonable might they then get?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point about this specific letter. I think the initial thing I, I get from it and this includes the checklist of the the timid sex that was had, is that this letter writer doesn't think they were doing anything wrong. You know, like, I think they know that they weren't, and they feel that they weren't, and they feel that their neighbor is being unreasonable. So I think that is a good place to start of, like, they do not need to change their behavior to please someone that they do not feel like is being reasonable in the way they've handled the situation. That's my initial read on it.
1: Yeah, I share that read for whatever else it's worth. If they had been having sex for hours more loudly than that, I would still think that they were well within their rights to do so, and if the, you know, other member of the apartment building didn't like it, you know, unfortunately that's part of the problem of living in a world with more than just ourselves. Um and the solutions to that are put on a headphones, go for a walk. Yes. Uh, you know, send up a, a quick moment of gratitude to the universe that sex exists and is enjoyable and provides people with, you know, pleasure. Um, any any other uh, options, none of which would ever involve pounding on somebody else's door and saying, excuse me, I can hear your intimacy in my own home. How dare you remind me that I don't live in a castle.
0: <laughs> and that other people got to enjoy this part of life. Yeah, I I feel the same way. Like, Haven't we all heard other our neighbors having sex at one point in our lives? Like if you've lived in not a castle at some point, I think it's it's sort of a experience that you have to have if you're living in a big apartment building. I don't think it's unusual.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, unfortunately, letter writer, you got one of those occasional cranks who do exist. I think most people have a pretty straightforward and intuitive understanding that if you hear somebody else in your apartment building having sex, it's none of your business. Um, And, you know. Don't worry about it. And every once in a while, you get somebody who is just like, "How dare your sounds reach my ears? Um, you violated the sanctity of my, you know, personal fiefdom, and I'm going to come try to yell at you." Those people are wrong. Um, you know, they they have never successfully like prosecuted these in small claims court. You know, Judge Judy is never like, "You're right, your neighbor was having sex too loudly. They owe you five hundred dollars." Landlords are not going to be like. Great. I thank you for bringing this to my attention. I'm going to send out an email to everyone in the building reminding them that they can only have like quiet uh, chamber sex. Um <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, w- even even with all that being said, I also get that, like, part of what was really jarring was, like, it's 11 p.m. This guy was knocking over and over and over again, even after you weren't answering the door. And so part of why you're, like, anxious about the possibility of having sex again soon is just, like, I'm worried. Like, my heart's going to start racing and not in the fun way. And I'm worried that I'm going to feel, like, scared that he's going to be pounding and pounding on the door and not leaving. And so to that end, I th- I think I would lean towards in the absence of more information i would i would encourage this letter writer not to talk to this guy i think this is someone to be avoided um not least because he sounds a little aggressive um and at, at most consider flagging this with your landlord and just saying like i hope we don't have to like get in touch with you about this again but one of our neighbors is like pounding on our door at all hours um here's like his his complaint is not a reasonable one and like we might need you to like do something about it Um, I don't. I can't promise you that your landlord is going to do anything beyond sorry to hear that. He shouldn't have done that, but like whatever. But that, that would be sort of my first thought in terms of like looking out for potential future escalations from him.
0: Yeah, I think I I agree. Don't follow up with him. I think he's someone to be avoided if he's knocking on your door like this. And I do really appreciate the embarrassment that you have felt. I also am curious. This person said they wrote this last night. I think yeah. Last night at 11 p.m. I'm curious how things have changed over the past few days. If the embarrassment has been mitigated or if it's still there. But um, I appreciate that it's like you're afraid to have sex again because it's sort of inviting this person into your sex life through your brain of like this is he going to be present? Are you going to be worried about him and not being able to be in the moment? And that sucks. Um, anything that maybe you could do to, you know, maybe you put on music a little louder when you're you and your partner having sex or you, I don't know, like maybe the shower could help. Like if there's anything that could help you be more present and like feel that you're not going to be worried about the noises that you're making, because I think you deserve to not be worried about that. And yeah, I would ignore this person. And if they do bang on your door again, I I think if you have a landlord who you can talk to, I I know that some landlords are are not available or helpful, but if you do have one that is, I think that's a good idea.
1: Yeah. And then on top of that, I would also say, you know, if you have like a chain lock for your door, maybe if you're not always in the habit of using it, like when you're at home, start using it. Um, I don't want to be like excessively alarmist or make too many assumptions about how much homophobia might be motivating this guy's decisions. But I think you should use a chain lock on your door if you have one. I think you should uh, ask your landlord to install one if you don't. Um, I think you should continue to use that peephole. If he knocks on your door again, do not answer the door to him. Um, don't don't let him in. Don't open the door. Don't get roped into a conversation where he's going to be aggressive and unreasonable, and you're going to be scared. Um, and he's standing at the entrance of your house. Um, think of this guy as like a possible danger. I think better to like slightly put too much of a buffer in between you and him than otherwise like i'm not suggesting that you like call 911 um, or treat him as like as if he's about to like jump you when you walk to your car but cultivate like a healthy sense of like what physical distance can i put between myself and this guy avoid him maybe if you have next door neighbors that you talk to and are friendly with let them know um you don't uh, you definitely don't have to Talk about the like intimate details, but just say like this guy was pounding on our door and it was kind of scary the other night. Will you, you know, let me know if you see him around up on the floor. Heads up if he tries to do that to you, don't let him in. Um, again, just kind of like any attempt to like not feel like you're alone in your anxiety about whether or not he's going to come pounding on your door again. Um, and similar to mm-hmm. my thoughts in the first letter, anything that you need to do to like uh, avoid or end any interaction that he might try to foist on you again in the future, great. Whether that means like putting in headphones, not listening to him and waiting for him to go away. Whether that means saying just like, you got to go, man. We're not talking about this. Whether that means saying, sure, sure, sure. You got it. Whatever to get him away from you in the moment so that you can then kind of like reassess with your partner and decide what other options you might need to take. Whether or not he does start harassing you and you do need to document it, take it to your landlord, consider your other options. Um, Anything that you have to say in the moment to and or get out of any kind of interaction with him is totally okay.
0: Absolutely. You don't owe him those interactions. And yeah, I would keep your door closed. You can talk to him through your door if you choose to, um, or you don't have to at all. I do think the homophobia is, I, I think it changes this, and I think it's very real. And I think So I don't think I would recommend this because I was, you know, she, my friend, has like rules that she set with her downstairs neighbors of like quiet hours, and we won't be banging on the, you know, floor after this after 10 p.m. But I, I honestly don't think, I don't know if that's something that's worth engaging on with this specific person. So I think I would just ignore him for now and hope that he, you know, that he doesn't bang on your door again. And if he does. In this aggressive way, I would just try to avoid the interaction as as if possible. Like, you don't even need to answer the door. You don't need to go come to the door at all. Even if he just heard you in there, it doesn't matter. You can just sit there and be quiet until he leaves.
1: Right. And I get why the um, first time yeah. they might not have realized, like, it's our downstairs neighbor. Is everything okay? Um, and so I can totally understand why they had, like, just answered the door. But, like, if in the future he's just pounding on the door and you feel like, I have to answer it because it's the only way to get him to go away, you know, Call a friend, like figure out other options, you know, yell fuck off through the door if that feels, you know, uh, like a possible thing for you. Um, don't yell fuck off if that feels like it would exacerbate an already frightening situation. I just, um, I do really want to stress, yeah, I, I would have a totally different set of uh, advice for somebody who's like, I have a downstairs neighbor who like makes unreasonable noise complaints about sex. But, like, in this context of, like, I never talked to this guy, and then he was pounding on our door repeatedly at 11 p.m. because we had quiet sex for 20 minutes, that guy gets my, like, uh, radar up in terms of, like, possible, you know, that that is not a good guy. That's not, uh, that's not a guy no. who it's, like, possible to have a reasonable conversation with. That is a scary guy.
0: And I would encourage the reader just to... Um You can't just simply not feel mortified or not feel embarrassed. That's a very real feeling. You should sit with that and experience it. But at the same time, know that you have done nothing wrong, that you are not to blame for anything, and you don't owe this person anything. Um, And if you do feel mortified, that's okay. It's okay to feel that, but it is not necessary to feel. And um, you should feel safe and able to you know, ex- have sex in your own house. I think we all we all agree with that.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that makes a lot of sense that it's like, it's a reasonable feeling given what he did. But to remind yourself, this is the voice of truth. We weren't so like embarrassing and conspicuous and doing something so outside of the realm of like regular human behavior that we brought this on our heads. This is like, I mean, it, it feels pretty clear. Like he wanted to scare you. And that is why he didn't just like knock twice and say, hey, I'm sorry, can you guys keep it down? I'm trying to sleep. That's why he like pounded on the door, waited, did it again, waited, did it again. He was trying to intimidate you. And that's partly why you feel that like flare of both really embarrassed and really anxious because it's just like this guy was trying to intimidate us in a moment of like, you know, vulnerability. That was the goal. Mm-hmm.
0: He wanted to make you both feel like this. Otherwise, he could have slipped a note under the door, casually talked to you the next day. Like, he wanted you to feel bad about this and humiliated, so.
1: He could have waited another 10 minutes, and then when you both went to sleep, realized, like, that was it. That was 20 minutes of, like, mostly quiet sex that I happened to overhear. Not a huge deal at all. Um, Yeah, I don't want to get too like, the gift of fear about this, but I I just – it feels really straightforward to me that this was, like – calculated and meant to intimidate
0: and you know if there's any i don't know how big your building is but if there's any other queer people in your building who you could talk to about this or just like if you have friends in the building or anything else like that just sort of some solidarity at your home base um i know that has you know helped me before knowing that i have certain neighbors who i can rely on um maybe your next door neighbors on the upstairs floor i would if it happens again or if you feel comfortable maybe reach out
1: I think that's all that I have uh, on this one. So uh, unless you have any kind of last-minute thoughts, uh, you know, not to make too neat a segue, but you have yourself recently um, released something that thinks a lot about uh, proximity, intimidation, intimacy, vulnerability, avoidance, et cetera. Um, This this might be a a good springboard to talk about your latest project. Sure.
0: So... I assume with all of those things you're talking about Morning Show.
1: I was actually thinking about The End of Us. Um, That's
0: so funny. (laughs) But that's amazing, yeah. Well, The End of Us also has intimidation in it.
1: That's, I mean, that's that's very much why I I had it in mind. But yeah, which form of fictional intimidation uh, would you like to discuss first? Totally your call.
0: (laughs) Well- um yeah I'll talk about The End of Us. Um that is so it is my first feature film as an actor. Um I am also working on, you know, trying in the process of working on a feature as a writer, director, but The End of Us I was very excited and lucky to act in and had a blast. Um and actually the story of The End of Us is we shot it during COVID in May June of 2020. Um five friends and I moved into an Airbnb, COVID tested, Quarantined for two weeks, moved into an Airbnb together and shot this film. Um, it's about me, uh, my character, Leah, and um, her boyfriend who've just broken up right before the quarantine starts. And now they're living together, stuck in this house as recent exes and trying to um, really just move on with their lives, but but together because that's sort of the situation that they're forced into through a variety of circumstances. And that's sort of the story.
1: <laughs> and was this something that you were primarily working on in your downtime from your work on the morning show, or was this the kind of thing that was like very much written hastily, like on set in between breaks?
0: So the end of us, I didn't. It's I didn't write the end of us. Basically, what happened was two of my. I used to work with them at BuzzFeed, Stephen Cantor and Henry Lovner. and they basically approached me, being like, "We were thinking about this movie. Would you want to act in it?" They gave me an outline. I give them notes on it. They took it back to the drawing board, and we sort of did that process and um then we had no script we had a we had a outline that Henry and Stephen had done. They had a sense of what they wanted from each scene, and then we basically improvised the entire movie every day we would wake up in this Airbnb and they'd be like, "We shot it in sequence. They'd be like, "Here's what we shot yesterday. Let's figure out how we can." um, you're what we need to do today. So it was, I did feel like I contributed as a writer because I got to improvise a lot and I got to sort of pull out that, like the comedy, um, you know, I I used to do a lot more comedy than, and I started on morning show and I sort of turned to drama, but, um, it was really funny getting to like, you know, I improvised at UCB and sort of getting to like pull all of that stuff back out was really fun. Um, but I did it, uh, Yeah. While I was, I mean, sort of like morning show was happening in the background, but because of COVID, we, I had just written episode seven, COVID happened. We threw out seven scripts and had to restart. So there was this like month period where we were just sort of like the showrunner was just sort of figuring out what she wanted to do with season two. And we all really didn't have any work to do for like a couple of weeks. And that's when we shot this. I think I had one meeting, um, one morning that I just took in the Airbnb and beyond that, You know, then things started back up again, and we started writing, and we wrote all through, you know, 2020.
1: That's remarkable. Congratulations. Um, It's always so interesting to me, too, especially when I think about – I don't know if this is typical of your own experience, but, like, for example, something like The Morning Show is one of my few direct encounters with the, like – project or landscape of morning television. And so I'm sort of curious either whether you had much experience with morning TV prior to working on this and whether or not it feels like there is a sort of consensus within the writer's room of are we morning TV show people who are now like mediating this experience for evening show people or are we all evening show people uh, trying to cobble together a sense of what a morning show person might be like um, despite not like having much of an entree into that world. I have like obviously like a sort of suspicion but uh i'm often wrong
0: what is your i'm so curious about your suspicion
1: i would imagine i you know again like I, I realize with a lot of like modern streaming tv it's not as traditional as like this show comes on every night at 8 p.m. it's appointment television but it's very much in the tradition of Evening drama um, and so I would imagine that the majority of the writers come from writing evening TV rather than you know somebody who has worked for say Good Morning America and is now making the switch. so my guess would be it's more evening people, some more night owls um and I would imagine a morning person would be the the odd one out. That's just my theory. am I wrong?
0: You're a hundred percent correct. <laughs> There was one of the writers, Kristen Layden, a dear friend, is um, she worked at NBC, um, and she'd like worked on the Olympics as she started as I like, think a page, and she had done some cool stuff there. And then I I was a journalist for a couple of years, and then I worked on a late night show on Comedy Central. And me doing a and which was just a daily show spinoff called The Opposition, but it was a daily show every day and like that was the closest thing anyone in the room had had to the experience of actually working on a daily TV show. So the two of us sort of had a background in the media world and the, the journalism world. Um, and then one of the writers on season two was like a lawyer, which is maybe sort of similar um, in the fact that he had like come from a different world. Um, other than that, like no experience in the morning show. We were all drama writers or TV writers. Um And no one really, I think there were like two writers who loved, you know, Good Morning America or who loved the Today Show. Like most of us never watched them. So, um, but, you know, of course, once I got staffed on the show, I started watching them all the time. And, you know, I think the showrunner, of course, did a ton of research and we had a researcher in the room. Um, I think the showrunner and the researcher actually went to the Today Show and did like a couple days shadowing um, different people there. But, yeah. We were mostly not in the morning world.
1: No, and it's. I think that's so interesting too, because I can think of a fair amount of um, sort of like entries in the, in the ongoing project of like TV about TV. Um, and that's always been like a sort of fascinating genre. But I think the thing that's so interesting to me, especially as you were saying, you'd worked on a daily show, but not a daily morning show is like, I, I can definitely think of people who have written for daily programs, especially um, any spinoffs of The Daily Show who have themselves become like either celebrities or like familiar names um, who might get like um, profiled. But I have at least quite rarely seen like I feel like one thing that often happens with anyone who's involved in morning TV who, who becomes known on any sort of um, other platform is like people will always say like, what's your daily routine? And I and I feel like nobody asks that with anyone who staffs like a late night show. Like no one cares. Um, They might care about your personal life or your comedy or your other projects, but no one's like you work on a show every night that airs at ten. What's your day look like? When do you get up? Because everyone, I think maybe just implicitly assumes it's bad. You don't want to try it. You you shouldn't want to replicate this.
0: Yes. Um, A hundred percent. I mean, I know that those nightly shows, the schedules must be so insane. And having worked on one, I know that they are really nuts. But the morning show, people are obsessed with, like, these people wake up at 3 a.m. and they do, like drip IVs full of like vitamins and they just have like these insane schedules and they're done by like 1 p.m. and they have to go to sleep at like 8. Um People are very fascinated by it. And we were too in the room. I mean, I can't imagine living like that for like 20 years or however long these people do it.
1: I, I share that fascination, which is so odd, again, just because like I, I don't watch a lot of morning television. I don't live my life in the way that They do. But whenever there's anything that's like this person who does morning TV just dropped their daily routine, like I cling to it. I I feel like it must be like how people in the Middle Ages felt about like nunneries and monasteries having like a book of hours. Like I have got to know, you know, how early like Hildegard gets up to pray because she's doing this on behalf (laughs) of all of us. And like she's up at 3 a.m. and again at five. Like, I must know. It's it's a very strange relationship to have um, to people who just have jobs, but for some reason I think of as um, as, as distant from me as an astronaut.
0: Joe, I, I mean, completely. It's. it's- such a crazy world. I, I feel similarly. I'm so fascinated by how anyone can live a normal life <laughs> in this in this morning world. And I do think sometimes if we did write the show accurately to you know Hoda's schedule, like no one could ever go out to dinner or like have a drink because they're like home in bed at six or t- or like however early they go to bed in real life. Um, it's it's hard to write a show where like all of the action has to happen by ten a.m.
1: Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I always just fall back to that old Tracy Jordan line. You know, I got up at seven 30 today. Did you know in the morning they've got food, TV, almost everything. It's pretty good. Um, and that about sums it up. (laughs) Thank you so much, Allie, for being on the show. Congratulations again on the film and on, um, all your experiences with morning people and, um, have a great rest of the day.
0: Thank you so much, Danny. I really appreciate you having me on.
1: And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. In this situation, and that's not to, again, I don't know a lot, letter writer, about um, how many child caring duties you may or may not have taken on over the last three years um, or whether or not you and your girlfriend live together. So I I don't mean to say like you're not involved in their lives or they don't love you or you don't love them. It's just that it's a little bit unclear uh, how formal your relationship is. And so one of the things that I'm really aware of reading this letter is you know, letter writer, this might be a good opportunity for you to think about on your end and also possibly to talk about with your girlfriend, whether or not you would like to potentially formalize your relationship to these kids, whether that involves at some point getting married to your partner, whether that might at some point involve adopting any of the kids, um, both because it's clear that you really, really care about them. And also, you know, I hate to like read a letter about a mostly happy couple and think about it with an eye towards like, well, what if, what if you split up? But I'm very aware that like, if you're, If you and your girlfriend broke up tomorrow and she didn't want you to see the kids anymore, you would have no uh, legal recourse to to being in their lives. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, group void We're prohibited by law, see terms and conditions eighteen plus.